0: In the last three weeks, we have spoken about the baptismal liturgy and the liturgy of the Word, and Deacon Larry expertly traced for us the history of the Paschal Mystery in the Scriptures. Today, we come to the homilies I've been really, really looking forward to. So, strap in, because this is going to be fun for me. Without going into much detail here... Suffice it to say that one of the great scandals of the Roman Rite over the centuries has been its progressive disconnect from the people. Slowly over time, partly from a desire to preserve Latin as the language of worship, partly due to increased complexity and dramatic elements introduced by Frankish liturgists, it's always easy to blame stuff on the French, and partly due to historical factors that I won't rehearse here, the Mass became a purely clerical affair. The priests and other ministers would be gathered around the altar saying the Mass, and the people would be observing, almost like they were attending a play. By the end of the 19th century, the core of the Mass was said silently by the priest to himself or to the servers, with the empty silence being filled by the choir singing complex Baroque compositions, or at a low Mass by the people singing hymns or praying their private devotions. The Mass was schizophrenic, with the head separated from the body. Now, given all of this, and the fact that in the early 20th century, there was something called the liturgical movement, which worked to try to bring and re-engage people back to the liturgy, it should come as no surprise that when the Second Vatican Council set out to reform the liturgy, it would issue a call that all the faithful should be led to that fully conscious and active participation in liturgical celebrations which is demanded by the very nature of liturgy. The Council continued, Such participation by the Christian people is their right and duty by reason of their baptism. In the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. In the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. This was an absolute bombshell in 1963. And given that, why do you think the last 57 years of the Church have been liturgically so chaotic? It's because the Church is suddenly trying to focus on something that she has not deeply considered for more than a millennium. The Church is trying to answer the question of how to include the people in the liturgical action of the Mass, a question that we have not deeply considered for more than a millennium. This is New Territory. In trying to answer this question, we are often stuck between two extremes, and these extremes have caused a lot of fighting over the last half-century. On one extreme, we see people who believe nothing structural needs to change. The Mass is perfect as it was. And sure, maybe we need to do more education for the laity about the Mass, but inaudible Masses and readings in Latin have nothing wrong with them. These are the folks who reject the liturgical changes following the council and who worship exclusively using the old rites. On the other extreme, we see people who believe that laity will only ever be fully participating in the liturgy when there is no longer a distinction between priest and people, between sanctuary and nave, between ordained and baptized. This flattening of the liturgy, this removal of the priesthood or the clericalization of the laity, has had many negative effects that many of you have probably lived through. In general, however, the liturgical reforms following the Council did a fairly decent job of avoiding these extremes and increasing the proper participation of the laity. The restoration of the dialogues, first and foremost, the dialogues between priests and people, which had previously only been carried out by the servers or the choir. This restoration was essential in restoring lay participation. Also the wider use of the vernacular language, something that had already been considered at the Council of Trent in the 16th century, but for which the Church only seemed ready in the 20th century. And the reintroduction of the offertory procession and the general intercessions, parts of the Mass that involved the laity but which had fallen out of use, also very helpful for the restoration of the participation of the laity. Now, fun fact. You'll notice in that list I didn't mention where the priest stands when he celebrates Mass. Everybody associates the Second Vatican Council with the priest turning around at the altar. But the Council actually never mentioned this. And, in fact, there is only one document in the last 57 years that talks about the priest being able to celebrate Mass facing the people. That document was a report from a Roman committee implementing the Second Vatican Council. And it didn't require or recommend that the priest stand there, only gave him the option to stand there. Today, in the instructions for the Mass, the priest still has the option to stand on that side of the altar or the other side of the altar. The reason the priest faces the people is because there was a big conversation and still is a big conversation in the Church about how to help lay people participate in the Mass. It felt like facing the people was more participatory. But there are some U.S. bishops today and actually the head of the Roman worship office who said they prefer when priests celebrate facing the same direction as the people, because it provides for a common worship. Everybody is worshiping the same direction. Anyway, our bishop in Seattle hasn't been pushing this, so uh, it likely will not be coming to assumption anytime soon. I mention it to you because it's interesting, and because it is a conversation that's happening in the church, and I'd like to make sure you know the conversations that are happening in the church. But the direction that the priest faces during Mass is just one of many significant debates we continue to have about the implementation of the Second Vatican Council, and how to bring about lay participation. And these debates rage on because we can't actually agree on the definition of participation. Is participation taking the place of the priest? Is participation just showing up? We have this debate. Well, now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This debate is silly, because the Church actually told us what participation means in a document in 1967, just two years after the Council closed. There was so much going on, people didn't really pay attention to this document. The document was Musicum Sacrum, which implemented the musical teachings of the Second Vatican Council. And in Musicum Sacrum, the Church felt it necessary to define what participation means. The document starts by repeating the Council. The faithful fulfill their liturgical role by making that full, conscious, and active participation which is demanded by the nature of the liturgy itself, and which is by reason of baptism the right and duty of the Christian people. Okay, we've heard that part already. Here's the new part two years after the council closed. This participation should be above all internal, in the sense that by it the faithful join their mind to what they pronounce or hear, and cooperate with heavenly grace. It must be, on the other hand, external also, that is, such as to show the internal participation by gestures and bodily attitudes by the acclamations, responses, and singing. The faithful should also be taught to unite themselves interiorly to what the ministers or choir sing, so that by listening to them they may raise their minds to God. I cannot emphasize enough how important these words are for understanding and implementing the Second Vatican Council. The participation of the laity that the Council pushed so hard is above all internal, which means that all of us here first participate in the Mass by understanding what is going on in the Mass and uniting ourselves to that action. Sometimes that action is external. Sometimes it's like the entrance procession. Not all of us are in that procession, but we understand the point of that procession is to come together as the body of Christ, and we unite ourselves to that action. Sometimes that action is simply the prayers of the priest at the altar, but those prayers are not just for the priest. All of us, by participating in the Mass, are called to pray those prayers. The priest externally, the laity internally, but all of us are united and participating in In every part of the Mass, our participation is above all internal. And then, at times, it is externalized through bodily attitudes, gestures, acclamations, responses, and singing. From time to time, the internal participation we have for the entire Mass is externalized. Dialogues, standing, kneeling, singing, all of this is an expression of what is already going on in our heart and mind. My friends, the Second Vatican Council was and continues to be an incredible gift to the Church, and the rediscovery of the dignity and role of the laity in both the liturgy and mission of the Church is something we can never, ever allow ourselves to lose sight of or back away from. But it is essential that we pay attention to the actual theology given to us by the Council Fathers that we pay attention to the words of the council and the documents. I have no idea the experiences that you've had at other parishes or at Assumption, but in my experience growing up in the Catholic Church, I have had so many priests tell me that I'm not participating unless I'm singing the hymns. And I've been at so many parishes where the underlying assumption is that the liturgical ministers are somehow participating more in the Mass than everybody else. This is not the teachings of the Church. Our participation is not judged by our external actions, but by our internal unity to the liturgy and to the prayers. Our external actions merely serve to express this internal unity and participation. The importance of deepening our understanding of liturgical participation so that we can unite ourselves to what's going on in the Mass, is why I feel so strongly about this homily series. Over the next couple of months, I am going to be talking about the liturgical actions taking place, specifically so that we can unite ourselves to these actions. I'm going to talk about how the Mass is a sacrifice, so that we can unite ourselves to the sacrificial nature of the liturgy. I'm going to talk about how the Mass is a communion, so that we know how to enter into communion through it. And I'm going to talk about liturgical music and the role it plays in helping us unite our hearts and minds to what is going on in the liturgy. And I'm sure other topics will come up from my mind or from your feedback. From time to time, I will also tie a tweak I'd like to make to our worship and Assumption to these homilies. So I will give you the theology, and then I'll tell you kind of how we're going to implement that. Today's tweak is what Frederick already mentioned. I'm asking our cantors to no longer announce the hymn numbers. This is not because I don't want people to sing. Again, the council specifically mentions singing as one of the important externalizations of our internal participation. But we have a hymn board. And when we announce the hymns, it interrupts the liturgical action with an announcement. We all know we're going to sing. We all know where to look for the hymn numbers. So I've just asked not to have that interruption. We should also say that what we're doing for the hymns is the entrance, the offertory, and the communion processions. That's the action that we're uniting ourselves to. Those processions are important and they mean something. We are not uniting ourselves to the hymn. That's not the end. The end is the procession. The hymn is the means to that end. Some people really unite themselves to the action by singing. And that's great and that's wonderful. And I'm going to talk more about that when I talk about liturgical music. But some people unite themselves to that action more reflectively. They like to reflect on what is being sung. They like to reflect on the procession. That's fine, too. I don't want to give anybody the impression that you have to sing the hymn in order to unite yourself to that procession. Ultimately, what matters most above all things is that we enter deeply into every part of the Mass. We live in a unique and blessed time where the Church has turned for the first time in a millennium her immense theological energies specifically toward the rediscovery of lay participation in the Mass. We have realized once again that the Mass belongs to us all, and it is in uniting our hearts and minds to the actions of the Mass that we will unite ourselves to Jesus and to our salvation. I hope we can appreciate how unique this time is, and I hope we can enter fully into it because we are so blessed. I hope we can ask what it means to worship God and how we might do so here in the Holy Sacrifice. I look forward to journeying with you more deeply into these questions in the coming weeks. And in the meantime, I hope we can all take to heart the statement of the Council, that the liturgy and our participation in it is both our right and our duty as baptized Christians.